for it will is it working okay for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property to one he gave five talents to another two to another one to each according to his ability then he went away he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more so also he who had the two talents made two talents more but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest." So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, the Shawshank Redemption is one of my favorite movies of all time. I realized recently that all of my movie references are like 25-year-old movies, but I don't have many new ones, so sorry. Um, uh, Shawshank still holds up. It's a great movie. The Shawshank Redemption is about a man named Andy Dufresne, who's played in the film by Tim Robbins, who was wrongfully accused of murdering his wife and imprisoned in Shawshank Prison, which is in Maine. And while he's in Shawshank Prison, he meets a man named named Red, who's a longtime inmate of Shawshank Prison. Red is played by Morgan Freeman, and, and they befriend one another. Uh, and their conversations often happen as they're walking around the prison yard together during open time, and their conversations usually center around the idea of hope. Um, and whether it's possible to have something like hope in a place like Shawshank Prison. And much of the film really is about the danger of hopelessness. The danger of hopelessness is that your life just wastes away into meaninglessness. That's what Andy fights against throughout the film. And that's what he tries to encourage his friend Red to believe and to fight for as well. One of the most quotable lines in the film that summarizes Andy Dufresne's view of a hopeful life is when he says to Red, Red, you've got to either get busy living or get busy dying. Get busy living or get busy dying. The, the point is that you're either doing one or the other. You're not ever neutral. Your life is never in static. It's always moving in one of those two 
directions. Jesus' message to us through the parable of the talent is to get busy living. To get busy living and not to get busy dying. This parable, the final of our study of these parables, is, is a continuation of last week's parable about the ten bridesmaids. We looked at the beginning of Matthew 25 last week, and we saw there that Jesus teaches us in this whole chapter about what the kingdom of God will be like. There's a a future orientation to these final parables that Jesus tells before his death. The, The ten bridesmaids we saw last week is about being prepared, being ready for Jesus Christ to return, which he promised to do. Now, this parable, the talents is about the same theme. It's about being ready, being ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus asks you, no matter who you are, no matter what you're facing, are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Last week, I said that preparedness, being ready, looks like a life of repentance and faith, following Jesus in the day in and day out. The parable of the talents, which Beth read, gives us a fuller picture of what that repentance and faith looks like practically. The parable tells us that repentance and faith, a life of preparedness, is is not a passive life, but an active life. It's not a life of being idle, but about taking risks. It's about using the resources that God has entrusted to us for the sake of God's kingdom. The life God calls each of us to is an entrepreneurial life, not a sedentary life. So let's look at the parable of the talents in three parts. First, Jesus talks about the servant's task. Second, the servant's work. And then finally, the servant's reckoning. So first, the servant's task. Look at verse 14 with me again. Jesus tells us this story uh, that begins with, a master going on this long journey, which was relatively common for uh, wealthy merchants or landowners to do in the ancient world. But before he leaves, we find that this master calls three of his servants to him, three men in whom he's placing a great amount of trust. And he gives to each of these three men a tremendous amount of wealth to put to use for him while he is away on this trip. Remember, we've seen that word talents before in this series. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, we saw that a talent is the largest means of monetary exchange in in the Roman world. Generally, a talent was weighed either in gold or silver, and most calculations say that one talent basically equaled a lifetime of wages a lifetime of wages for a typical day laborer. So even one talent was an extraordinarily large sum of money. The master gives, we see in verse 15, the first servant five talents, the second two, and the third one. And notice he doesn't tell them anything specific about what to do or about how to use the resources he gives them. But it's clear from the rest of the story that he expects them to use the talents well, right? To put the money to good work for him. Some of us, I think, are familiar with Dave Ramsey. He's a Christian financial advisor who has a a daily radio show. He's helped many people get out of debt and get in better financial standing. And one thing that Dave Ramsey regularly says is that good financial management means your money works for you. You don't work for your money. 
Your money works for you. Some of you are like, what? <laughs> That's true. Your money works for you. You don't work for your money. That, that's what this landowner, what this merchant expects his servants to do, to put his money to work for him. There's two really important things that we can learn just from the initial couple of verses. The first one is this. God owns everything. Thank you for the amen. Man, I like that. God owns everything. Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. This landowner entrusts to the servants his property. The property that the servants have is on loan to them to use for advancing the interests of the master. We should think about all of our resources in the exact same way. Friends, we are not owners of anything. We are stewards. The talents in this story are pictures of all the resources that God gives his people for service and use in his kingdom. These can be all kinds of things. These can be your spiritual gifts. These can be your money, your time, um, your aptitudes, your relationships, and on and on and on. Jesus tells us that he gives everyone different amounts of resources just as the master gave different amounts of talents to the servants in the story. But the point is, no matter what God has entrusted to you, all of us have the same responsibility to make use of his resources for his kingdom. Now, among many other things, this truth should reorient the way we tend to think about money. It should reorient the way we tend to think about money. All of our money is God's money. Not just 10% of it. If you're a good Christian tither, thank you, by the way, for doing that. That's important. It's biblical. You're obeying Jesus. But it's not just 10% that's God's. All of it. 100% of our money is God's money. I heard a story recently from another pastor friend who was talking about something he heard one of his seminary professors say that kind of forever changed the way he thought about money. His seminary professor came into class one day and he was pretty frustrated. And he told the class why he was frustrated. He said that he and his family had been saving up for some months to go on a a really nice trip together as a family. And, uh, but that week, both of their vehicles had broken down. Their son had crashed one of them. I'm sure that would never happen to any of us. And the other one had just kind of went kaput. And so they had to dump all the resources that they had been saving for this trip into repairing both of their vehicles. And this seminary professor had been frustrated when he had gotten the news and he'd come home and told his wife, we're not going to be able to go on the trip because we've got to fix these daggum cars. And his wife looked at him and said, isn't that a funny thing for God to do with his money? Isn't that a funny thing? for God to do with his money. And the professor was stopped in his tracks and thought, oh yeah, I don't think I like this truth right now, but it is all God's money. I wonder if that's how we think about our money. And how would you know if you think about your money as God's? Well, you know, frankly, by how much you give to kingdom work. If the answer is almost nothing, you're not stewarding God's resources well. The fact that God owns everything puts money in its proper context in our lives, you see. It's one of many resources that God expects us to put to use for his purposes. 
And when we treat God's resources, whether it's money or anything else, as if we are the owners, then the money begins to own us. And the Bible calls that idolatry. So the first thing we have to see is that God owns everything. And the second thing I think this parable shows us, even at the beginning, is this. Jesus portrays the heart of his father in this story, too. God is lavish with us. God gives out his resources abundantly. I mean, look at the story again. The master entrusts significant wealth, significant wealth to his servants because the master, representing God, is generous. He's kind. He's open-hearted with them. God the Father is that way with you. The generous and lavish heart of the one true God is displayed in all of our lives every day. But the main way it's displayed is, is in that God has given us the greatest gift of all. It sounds kind of hokey, but it's true. He's given us Jesus. He's given us his own very son. He's given us Christ in his life and death and burial and resurrection that we might have life and righteousness and pure hearts. And he gives us a second great gift. He gives us his spirit to comfort us and to lead us and to guide us. As I reflected on this parable this week, I often thought of Romans chapter 8, verse 32, in which the apostle Paul writes this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you see the, the gospel logic of that verse? Paul's saying, if God has given us himself, if God's given us himself in the gospel, surely he will take care of us as we live life in his kingdom. God doesn't have to include us in his great kingdom work at all. God Shocker, ready? Shocker, here it comes. God does not need you. And God does not need me. But he lovingly blesses us with gifts and resources and abilities. He entrusts us with kingdom purpose and gives our lives direction and, and drive. And this is all from his grace. So the story encourages us this morning to see every good gift and experience and aptitude that we have as a gift from God who loves us, and then to use those gifts and experiences and aptitudes to invest in his work. So very practically, brothers and sisters, all of your financial resources, your financial resources are all to be used with the kingdom in mind. Your physical energy, your intellectual ability are all to be used with the kingdom in mind. Your gifts of hospitality or encouragement or charity or teaching or prayer are all to be used with the kingdom in mind. So no matter how gifted you are, this is what God has called us to. So the question Jesus asks again is, are you using your, quote, talents for God's kingdom? Are you investing in God's kingdom or yours? Only one will last. Secondly, we see the servant's work. The master goes away, we read in verse 15, and in verse 16, we see at once, notice that language, right away, immediately, at once, 
The first servant went and traded with his five talents and produced over time five more talents, 100% profit. And, and then the second servant, verse 17, does the same thing, working with less but still producing pretty great dividends. And then the third servant, Jesus contrasts with the first two. That's why that word but is there at the beginning of verse 18. Uh, and Jesus focuses his attention on this man. This, this servant takes his one talent and digs in the ground and buries it. He hides it. So the actions of the first two servants show us what preparedness for Jesus's return does look like. The first two servants exhibit for us what readiness really is. What is readiness? Well, these men put their talents to use. They take risks. They work hard. And they do it with the kingdom of God on their horizon. The picture that Jesus paints leaves us with the impression that these are industrious and entrepreneurial and hardworking and diligent servants. They go to work right away. They produce exponential results. One commentator sums up their behavior by saying this, risk is at the heart of discipleship. Risk is at the heart of discipleship. Are we risking and working for the kingdom of God? How are we using what God has given us for his namesake and for his purposes? Now remember, Jesus, he doesn't give specifics about what the servants did. And so I, nor anyone else, can, we can't legislate exactly what each one of you should do. There's a lot of creative freedom and flexibility here, which is good news. But the message is clear. Readiness for Jesus' coming implies hard work in his kingdom with the lavish resources he has entrusted to us. What might that look like in your life? That'd be a great thing for you to think about today. I mean, just here in our little local church, there are so many examples of this. Will and Lauren have spent much of their life caring for foster children and being involved in the work of adoption, along with many others in the history of our church. If God's given you a heart to do that, that's a wonderful way to use the resources, the skills, the aptitudes, even your home that God has given you for his kingdom. One of our elders, Tim Roundtree, who's not here today, so I can talk about him. Be careful to miss church, elders. Um, <laughs> Tim uh, is a, a former prosecutor, but now works as an, a defense attorney. It's not wrong to be a prosecutor, by the way, but the re reason Tim became a defense attorney is because God gave him heart to see a more just society. And so he works to defend people and to ensure that they're treated with equity under the law. That's a great way to do kingdom work in the vocation God has called you to. Over the years, I've known many of you who are in the United States Air Force or the United States Army. And as I've gotten to know some of you men and women, I, I've often heard similar stories about how you're in the military and you're climbing the ranks in order to position yourself to gain some power, to gain some authority, to gain some insight so that you can fight against the many evils in our world. That's a great way to use your resources and your skills and your gifts for the kingdom. Some of you whom God has given significant financial means to have set up things like foundations that frees you to use income for all kinds of kingdom purposes and to care for people in creative ways. When we planted this church, 
eight plus years ago now. One of our biggest financial contributors was a man named Bill who lives in Arizona that had an extremely successful career in the oil industry in the 80s and 90s and retired early and has spent really the latter part of his life devoting a significant part of his estate to funding church plants. He's fund over a dozen church plants at this point with a significant amount of money. What a great way to use your resources to advance the kingdom. Marianne and I have other friends that we served and were in church with when we lived in Arizona. This guy does real estate. He buys apartment complexes and, and fixes them up nicely and then resells them and re-rents them. And he makes a hefty profit, which is a good thing. It's not bad to make profit. But part of what he does is he will redesign and fix up apartment complexes and rent them at very, very low cost to impoverished people in the city of Atlanta. But he's thought creatively, you see, about how to use his resources to advance God's agenda in this world. I wonder what that might look like for you. This, this parable asks you to think about that in your own story creatively. That's what it means to be ready. In contrast... To the first two servants, though, the third servant shows us what readiness for Jesus' return does not look like. What does he do? Well, Jesus tells us he goes and he buries the talent that was given to him. There's a lot to say here, but I'm just going to say one thing. The, The crucial thing to understand is that the behavior of the third servant is closely tied to what he thinks his master's character is like. Did you catch that? Did you see his excuse? Verse 24 and 25. Master, he says, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. So his view of his master is skewed, by the way. It's tragically skewed. He's failed to see his master's generosity and kindness and the opportunity he's being afforded. Instead, all he can think about is what's going to happen to him if he ruins things. What's going to happen to me if I lose this talent? He can't get past his misguided view that his master is what he calls a hard man. To sum it up, he doesn't trust his master. And because he doesn't trust his master, he doesn't use his talent. He doesn't trust his master. And because he doesn't trust his master, he buries what God has given him to use for God's glory. Are you burying your talent? Are you burying your talent? Are you stingy with time? Are you stingy with money? Are you unwilling to use your time in ways that cause discomfort to you but help others? Are you sitting on your hands instead of exercising your spiritual gifts? Friends, listen. Jesus is saying here that if that's true of you, it says something about the way you view God. You're like this third servant. You don't trust that he'll take care of you if you go and work for him. You're trying to take care of yourself. And probably preserve a comfortable existence, hoping for smooth sailing for yourself and your family. Jesus is asking you through the prism of this third servant to reevaluate your life. Reevaluate. Don't be like the third servant. Burying what God asks you to invest. 
Don't hold too tightly to your treasure because it's not your treasure. It's God's. It all comes down to the gospel. Romans 8.32. If it is true, if it is true that God has already given you Jesus, God had his own son murdered. Murdered so that you can live, so that you can be forgiven, so that you can experience a life of peace and hope. If that's true, surely it's also true that God's going to provide you with exactly what you need as you serve and work and live in his kingdom. Last thing, the servant's reckoning. In verse 19, Jesus tells us the master returns. He's been gone for a long time. But now he comes back to settle accounts with his servants. And, and first we see the reports of the faithful servants. Notice that they're basically identical. The first one is in verse 20 and the second one is in verse 22. They tell their master of their work. And interestingly, they emphasize the ROI, their return on investment, don't they? And, and in turn, in verse 21 and verse 23, the master expresses his pleasure with the first two servants. He commends them for their work. And notice, he doesn't express any less delight or interest in the second servant. In fact, he tells the second servant the exact same thing he told the first servant, even though he didn't gain as much income with his talents. Friends, listen, Jesus is happy when you use your gifts for his service. Jesus is happy. When you use his gifts for your service, no matter how great or how small they may be. So don't be a follower of Jesus who's intimidated by the seemingly overpowering gifts of others. Use the gifts that Jesus has given you, knowing that Jesus is just as happy with your use of your gifts as he's happy with Billy Graham's use of Billy Graham's gifts. Uh, the consequences of the servant's labor, are, they're great too. They're invited in 21 and 23 to enter the joy of your master. Their reward, their reward is to share in the joy of the happiest being in the universe. The reward you get for using God's resources well is to share the joy of the most joy-filled person in the universe, God. But, but it's also clear that their work isn't over. In fact, it's going to increase. The master says their risk-taking work is going to be rewarded with the opportunity for more significant work. So the reward for service is not necessarily retirement. It's more service in more significant ways. Next, we see the idle servant in verse 24. Come and give his report. We've already seen that he speaks poorly of his master. He feared his master and therefore mistrusted his master. And this led to a lack of joyful labor for his master. And so the master turns the excuse of the third servant back on him. He basically says, listen, even if what you said about me was true, which it's not, you would have think that that would have motivated you to do something instead of nothing. Look at Jesus, verse 27. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. He's saying at least doing something minimal, earning 0.03% interest in some random bank account, would have been better than doing nothing but burying what I've given you. And, and so Jesus ends the parable by taking away what this one servant had 
and giving it to the first servant, provoking him to utter this little proverb in verse 29. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Here's the meaning. Here's what this parable is all about. A life well lived in God's world is not static. It is not neutral. It's dynamic. Faithful use of our gifts. Faithful use of our gifts, whether great or small, increases them. But lazy disuse and abuse is an abuse, rather, of our privileges and will mean the loss of our gift, the loss of our place in the kingdom. In fact, it's a sign that we never really got what the kingdom is about at all. Jesus' message for us is that the one who is truly a disciple is the one who waits for his return while working hard for his kingdom. Are you doing this? Are you preparing? You know, another way to ask really the same question is a way we phrase it often here. Has the gospel changed you? Is the gospel changing you and driving you to take risks for Jesus' sake? Only the gospel, Romans 8, 32, can give us the confidence and assurance to work and to risk, not just for ourselves, but for God and for others, because only the gospel gives us the confidence and the assurance that the risk is worthwhile. In fact, it's actually not a risk at all. It's the most rational thing you could possibly do with God's resources. Let me close by quoting from someone who I think understands this concept very well. He's a man named John Piper. He was a pastor of a church in Minneapolis for many years. And in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, Piper writes this. On the far side of every risk, even if it results in death, the love of God triumphs. This is the faith that frees us to risk for the cause of God. It is not heroism or lust for adventure, or courageous self-reliance, or effort to earn God's favor. It is childlike faith in the triumph of God's love that on the other side of all our risks for the sake of righteousness, God will still be holding us. We will be eternally satisfied in him. Nothing will have been wasted. What a life to live when nothing is wasted because everything that we have is from God. What are you building? God's kingdom or yours? There's only one that's going to last. Invest in it. Let's pray.